Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 31, verses 36 through 43 is what we're going to be looking at today. Last week, just a little bit of review, we looked at verses 24 through 35. Some of the highlights from last week, this is when Laban and Jacob met up, right? And there was just going to be the showdown that was going to happen out there in the hills of Gilead. And God appeared to Laban the night before he was to confront Jacob. And before he was going to accuse Jacob, and perhaps he had harm on his mind, God intervenes and impresses upon Laban, no, you're not going to mistreat him. And so Laban, the next morning, he and Jacob meet, and Laban accuses Jacob of stealing his gods. And Jacob says, hey, if anybody in my retinue has your gods, then uh, let them be put to death. And Jacob gives Laban permission to go search for the gods, and he does. He goes into the tents and doesn't find them. And you'll remember that Rachel did this thing where she put the gods, these little idols, if you will, these little images, into her saddlebags, and she lays on the saddle, and she comes up with an excuse. Please, Father, you know, excuse me, but uh, the way of women is with me. It's, that, it's my time of month. And so he doesn't want to look in those saddlebags because it would defile him. It would contaminate him. And ironically, anything that's in those saddlebags would be contaminated as well. So Laban's gods get contaminated If that was actually the case with Rachel, it may have just been an excuse. And that's where we left off. But the incident is not over. This scene is not done. And so we're picking up again right there in the middle of that scene in verse 36. Then Jacob was angry and rebuked Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my trespass? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? Jacob is angry. It is an error to think that a Christian can never be angry. You know, sometimes people have this misconception that, oh, if you're a Christian, you can't get angry. Just like they would have other misconceptions. The misconception that, oh, you're a Christian, therefore you don't drink alcohol. No, that's not actually what the Bible says. It says don't get drunk. All right? It doesn't have a prohibition against drinking alcohol. It has a prohibition about being drunk. Some people have the misconception that, Money is evil, but that's not what the Bible says. It says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, not that money itself is evil. This would fall into the category of similar misconceptions, that Christians can't get angry. No, that's not actually the case. Ephesians 4.26 sheds some light on this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 says, Be angry, yet don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. So what does it do? It sets some parameters up. If you're going to be angry, be angry, but don't sin. Don't let it lead you into sin. And don't let the sun go down on your wrath. That's another parameter for Christians getting angry. Get it resolved. Deal with it promptly. Don't let it fester. Don't let it be one of those things that destroys others and destroys you with time. Get it resolved. If somebody has something against you, go and resolve it with them quickly. Jacob was angry here. There's some other examples we have from the scriptures of people getting angry. We have Moses. When he went up on the mountain to meet with God... And down below, the people were going, hey, we don't know what happened to this Moses guy. Aaron, what do we say? And Aaron is Moses' brother. You would think he'd make a better decision than this. But uh, his solution, 
hey, uh, why don't everybody donate your gold and uh, your golden earrings, your bracelets, your jewelry, and we're going to make this idol. We're going to make this golden calf, and we'll start worshiping that. <laughs> Bad idea. Moses comes down from the mountain, having the Ten Commandments in his hands. He comes upon the scene, and he's incensed. He's got this righteous indignation. He's got this anger, and he ends up throwing down the Ten Commandments and busting them on the ground. And not only that, he goes and he takes that golden image, that golden idol, and he... <laughs> pulverizes it, grounds it down to powder, mixes it with water, makes people drink it. Yeah, Moses was angry there. We had another example of somebody that was angry, Phineas. Phineas was the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the same Aaron that we just talked about, the brother of Moses. And in this story, this takes place in Numbers chapter 25, verses 7 through 11 in particular, Phineas is among a group that are very contrite. They're crying out to God because the people are sinning. The people that they're representing, the entire nation of Israel that has been brought out of Egypt, they're in the wilderness, and now they're forsaking God. God has brought them. God has protected them. God has seen them securely thus far, and yet they're turning their backs on him by engaging in harlotry and idolatry with, with the women of the surrounding areas. And in fact, this one guy ends up taking this woman named Cosby, and they end up parading through the camp on the way to the tent to have sex. And as they're parading through, Phineas's anger boils up in him, and he grabs a javelin and follows them, and he ends up interrupting their sexual intercourse with the javelin speared through both bodies into the ground. And what does God have to say about that kind of behavior? God actually commended him. God actually said, I wish everybody was as zealous for me as Phineas was. So God actually commended him there, another example of anger. And then probably the classic example of somebody who gets angry in the Bible is Jesus himself. And one of the places that you see that is where he comes into the temple complex, the temple courts, the temple area, and he overturns the tables of the money changers. These are the people that were making a buck off of the people who were just coming to honor God. And Jesus recognizes what's going on there is it's basically extortion, it's thievery. They're making the temple complex, the house of God, into a den of robbers. And Jesus goes in, overturns the tables, empties out the money bags, makes a whip, and he takes care of business. So another classic example of somebody in the Bible getting angry. So righteous indignation, they're getting angry. We don't have anything telling us that this was inappropriate for Jacob to be getting angry at this time. What you see appears to be basically the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will. Or He's kept it pent up for 20 years now that he's been working for Laban, and now it finally all comes out. And that's, I think, what we're seeing here. Be angry and do not sin is one of the key points that I wanted to make reference to in our study today. Verse 37, he's still angry. He's still talking. Jacob saying, although you have searched all my things, what part of your household things have you found? Set it here before my brethren and your brethren that they may judge between us both. So he's basically saying, you've accused me of a crime. Jacob's saying this to Laban. You've accused me of a crime. Put on your evidence. Where's your evidence? Prove it. Prove that I did what you say that I did. You made the accusations in front of all these people all around us. Now put on your proof. If you don't have any evidence, then you need to dismiss your accusation against me. You need to withdraw your case. Verse 38. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young, and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. Jacob is asserting now that he's behaved correctly. He's behaved appropriately in the 20 years that he's been in Laban's service. He's beginning to lay out now the pattern of conduct that he has exhibited and that Laban has exhibited. And he's setting up a contrast here. When he says that your ewes, this is kind of ironic, when he says that your ewes have not miscarried, this is actually the same word that's in the plural, however, the same word as Rachel. 
It's as if he's saying, I've taken care of your Rachels. I've taken care of your little four-legged Rachels that have the wool, just as I've taken care of my most precious wife. He's saying, I've taken care of your Rachels. Your female goats have not miscarried their young. I've not eaten the rams of your flock. Female goats not miscarrying. You would think, well, how does Jacob have any bearing whatsoever on whether or not a goat miscarries? In this situation, I guess you would have to be pretty attentive, A, to know that your female goats are pregnant, and B, it sounds like you're probably protective. You're taking care of them. You're making sure that you know they're provided for, that they're not harassed or mistreated maybe by the other animals in the flock or in the fold. And that I have not eaten the rams of your flock. There were certain parameters, pretty strict, regarding when a shepherd could eat from one of the animals in the flock. And pretty much the parameters were this. You could only eat the animals that had been killed or died of natural causes. And uh, you could only eat animals that were not needed for future breeding requirements. What does that mean? It means you just can't go out there each week and go, ah, I'm in the mood for some meat. Let's kill that one. No, Jacob's saying, I haven't done that. Now, I will say that perhaps unscrupulous shepherds might do that. But that's not the case with Jacob. It sounds like he was being a good shepherd. In verse 39, that which was torn by beasts, I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. One of the things I want you to see about this passage right here is Jacob is basically saying, I went over and above what the expectations of the law were. When he talks about an animal that's torn by beasts, we find in the Code of Hammurabi, just as we also find in Exodus chapter 22, Exodus chapter 22, verses 9 through 13, it has certain rules, right, for the shepherd. And the shepherd's out in the field, he's taking care of the flocks. If you have an animal, whether it be a lion, whether it be a bear, whether it be a wolf, and we do have all three of those animals being described in the Bible as being threats to your flock, to your fold, all right? So if you have one of these predators come in, if you have a predator that comes and attacks one of your animals, right, and kills your animal, kills one of your sheep, and tears that animal up to the point that it ends up dying, the shepherd's responsibility then was to take the remnants of this animal, the pieces that were left, the dead carcass, and go and show the owner of the fold and say, hey, look, I just want you to know I didn't do this. Here's the proof that I didn't do this. Here's the proof this was done by a wild animal. And what happens? The owner of the fold is responsible financially for that animal. And here Jacob is saying, I didn't even do that. I was the one that bore the cost. And if you remember, we talked about this several lessons ago. What was the typical pay, would you say, of a shepherd? It was like 10%. So what does that mean? That means that the burden on Jacob bearing that cost of that dead animal is 10 times more of a burden to him than it is for Laban. So here he's saying, even though it was a burden, it was perhaps 10 times more than was expected that Laban would have incurred if he had just bore the loss. Jacob's saying, I did it. I went over and above what it was required by the law. That was the requirement of the law. Another thing that it says right here is, you required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. If an animal was stolen in the daytime, it was expected that the shepherd would be the one that would bear that cost. But at nighttime, because of darkness, how is the shepherd supposed to see and intervene and prevent that? And so Jacob is saying, even when it was nighttime, I still bore the loss. You required that of me. So he's saying, you required more than the law required of me. And I was willing to go above and beyond what the law required. I was willing to do that. I was willing to do that because I'm serving for you. I'm, I was serving for Rachel, the woman I wanted to love when you tricked me. I wanted to marry Rachel. You ended up having me marry Leah. That was seven years wasted in my life. Then there was a seven more that I had to work off for Rachel. And then I had, you know, the additional six years for the flock. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, basically, I went over and above what I was supposed to do. I would say this, if we were to summarize this, what little seed of application can we find in this? It's this, God's people 
should exhibit a commendable work ethic. God's people should exhibit a commendable work ethic. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 7 says this, that we should do our service as to the Lord, not as unto men. That we should look at it as if God is our supervisor, God is our boss. If man has a low standard for you and God would have a higher standard, we should live and work according to the higher standard that God would have of us. But if our bosses require more of us than God would require, then recognize that if you can't perform to the expectations of your boss because your boss's expectations are unreasonable, then what that means is God sees your efforts. And even though your boss's expectations are unreasonable, God would still say, I see that what you're doing is, in my eyes, reasonable. I see what you're doing, that you're working as unto me, and I'm okay with that. All right, so it's kind of, it goes two ways, whether you've got an easy boss or a hard boss. Verse 40, Jacob's still talking now, still angry, still talking to Laban. There I was, in the day the drought consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep departed from my eyes. We have here day and night, we have drought and frost. The word that's translated there for frost, it literally means freezing, 32 degrees or below. Uh, we need to recognize, however, that when we read these things, we are somewhat insulated. And that's kind of a pun intended. <laughs> We're used to working in buildings and living in houses that are air conditioned, that are insulated, that are providing us protection from the elements. These are luxuries that a shepherd wouldn't have. All right. And Jacob, you remember, what is his house? He lives in a tent. If it's cold outside the tent, it's probably still pretty chilly on the inside of the tent. If it's blazing hot on the outside of the tent, then on the inside, it's probably pretty hot too. And as a shepherd, he doesn't get to stay in the tent. As a shepherd, he's going to be spending most of his time out there in the elements. And these elements are such that it could really endanger his life. As a shepherd in Jacob's day and age, you don't have emergency blankets that look like tinfoil. <laughs> you don't have modern textiles. And you probably don't have the sleeping bag that you went and bought that has a little tag on it that says, this is good down to 20 degrees. All right. No, he didn't have those things. So the elements were a threat to his life. And here he is. He's saying that. He's saying in the day, the drought consuming, the frost by night. And my sleep departed from my eyes. Have you ever been sleep deprived? How dangerous that can be, right? You don't make good decisions when you're sleep deprived. It's really hard to function. And sometimes you make bad choices. I remember working night shifts in my job, and sometimes just getting home was a dangerous undertaking. Uh, sleep departed from my eyes, he says here. Verse 41, thus I have been in your house 20 years. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. 20 years. This is where it tells us then the summary of how many years he's been under Laban's rules. For 20 years here, 14 for the two wives, six for the flock. If I could summarize the uh, seed of application that we have here, it's this. It's give more than is deserved and expected or go the extra mile. Again, that's give more than is deserved and expected. He gave more than Laban deserved. Jacob gave more than Laban perhaps expected. Give more than is deserved or expected. That should be a role model for us as well. We should be willing to give more than is deserved. We should be willing to give more than is expected. All right. Matthew Henry has an interesting comment about this verse here. He says, If Jacob were willingly consumed with heat in the day and frost by night to become the son-in-law of Laban, what should we refuse to endure to become the sons of God? 
How much greater to be considered a child of God than to be a son-in-law of Laban? And yet it was for that position, for that title, the son-in-law of Laban, that Jacob endured all these things. Surely we should be willing to endure more. You know, the Bible teaches that endurance is a big part of the Christian life. That we're to endure. What good is endure, though, if we're not going through troubles? I mean, surely that's what it's talking about. When we go through difficult times, that's when the endurance shows, right? Who, who needs to endure the easy times? Those are easy. It's the hard times when we finally show what it means to endure. Paul even says, you have not endured to the point of shedding blood. <laughs> and I'm thinking, really? Do I have to endure to that point? To the point where my blood is being shed? Jesus did. He did that for us. So give more than is deserved or expected. Be willing to go the extra mile. If Jacob endured all these things to be a son-in-law of Laban, what should we endure to be considered a child of God? Verse 42. Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. You can still hear how Jacob is still angry in here. Of course he is. This is 20 years of pent-up anger, and he's, the dam's finally broke, and he's letting it all out. You've noticed there, though, that it says, The God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac. Fear of Isaac is, is an interesting translation. The translation committees often argue as to how to interpret this. There are different translations. Some of them would have, like, the dreaded one of Isaac, or the awe of Isaac, the terror of Isaac, the fearsome God of Isaac, or the one whom Isaac fears. And the discussion really has to do with this. Is this a God that Isaac was afraid of? Or is this the God that Isaac worshipped that inspired fear in others, and especially others that would confront or make life difficult for Isaac? And the context of this passage seems to suggest it's the God who would oppose or inspire fear in those who would oppose Isaac. Here we have what? We have Laban is coming against Jacob. We have Laban opposing Jacob. And what has happened? Jacob's God has opposed Laban. Jacob's God has met with him in a vision and said, enough is enough, you back off. You leave Jacob alone. And the second part of that verse says, God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands. God has seen my affliction. God has seen. We've run across this before, where God has seen, where somebody has marveled that God sees my situation. The first one we saw was in chapter 16, verse 13. That was Hagar. After that meeting with God, she marveled that God had seen her situation. We saw it also more recently with Leah in chapter 29, verse 32. That God had seen that she was unloved. And what happened? Opened her womb and she was able to become pregnant. Gave birth to the first child, the first son for Jacob. And she marveled how God had seen her situation. It's also coming up in the next book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 3 verse 9, where Israel's enslaved in Egypt. And they're crying out to God and it says God saw their affliction. God saw their situation. So discovering that God sees our situations. Here we find difficult situations that these people were in. Difficult situation that Hagar was in. Difficult situation Leah was in. Difficult situation that the entire nation of Israel was in. And what happens? God sees. What should we learn from that? We should learn that God sees you in your difficult situations. It's not that God has forgotten you. It's not that God is necessarily punishing you. It's not that God is going to get around to finally remembering to take a look at your situation and go, oh, wow, things got really out of hand. Things got out of control. I wasn't paying attention. Now it's really bad. I better do something about it. No, that's not it at all. God sees you in your difficult situation. What is intention? 
he's going to get you through it. You put your trust in him, you submit your life to God, and what happens? He doesn't deliver you from your tribulations. He doesn't deliver you from those difficult situations. He delivers you through them. God sees your situation. He delivers you through those situations. Jacob says in verse 42, God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands. My affliction, that was the way that Laban treated Jacob. And the labor of my hands, that was what Jacob returned to Laban. Jacob is setting up a case here. He's basically saying, you've mistreated me for 20 years, and I've been above board. I've been behaving appropriately for 20 years. You know, what we also notice here is that Jacob realizes God is with him. It says here in verse 42, unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, he realizes God's been with him. Unless he had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. <laughs> rebuked you last night. As, almost as if God issued a restraining order against Laban the night before. Leave Jacob alone. The interesting thing here is Jacob is aware now that God has been with him, that God has seen his situations. Perhaps he's realized it for a while, or perhaps it's just come to his realization lately. But Victor P. Hamilton points out, he says, Jacob is not aware that the gods of his father-in-law are with him too. What he does know is that the God of Abraham and the dreaded one of Isaac is with him. And then we move on to verse 43. Jacob is done talking. Laban has an outburst now. And it says in verse 43, And Laban answered and said to Jacob, These daughters are my daughters. These children are my children. And this flock is my flock. All that you see is mine. And then you see a transition. Laban ends up saying, But what can I do this day to these my daughters? or to their children whom they have born. It seems like that we have a shift going on right here, right now. In the middle of this verse, Laban has come to the realization that there's nothing else he can do. He's frustrated for sure. You can hear that in his voice. And he makes these wild accusations. These daughters are my daughters. Okay, we'll give you that. The daughters are your daughters. But you know what? Above and beyond that, they're now the wives of Jacob. And these children are my children. Now you've crossed the line. No, they're not. The daughters, yes, we'll give you that. They're your daughters, but these children are your children? Absolutely not. And this flock is my flock. Well, some of it used to be, but God has seen better to give it over to Jacob. And all that you see is mine? He's grasping at straws here. He's making desperate accusations, desperate assertions. And now he seems to come to a point, which we see here, where it signals the resignation of Laban to the reality he now faces, that God has been protecting Jacob. And so he finds out it's one thing to contend with another person. It's quite another to contend with God. And that's Laban's position here. I do want to draw our attention to verses 38 through 40 again. 38 through 40 of these verses we just looked at where Jacob laid out what it was like to be a shepherd under Laban. And in laying out what it was like to be a shepherd, if what he said was true, and I have no reason to doubt that it was, then we come to this conclusion that it sounds like Jacob was a good shepherd. I mean, it talked about 20 years I've been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. And we talked about how does Jacob have any role in that unless he's really paying attention and he's providing protection for these ewes. And I've not eaten the rams of your flock. An unscrupulous shepherd would, but he's saying he didn't. And that sounds like that would be a vote of confidence in him being a good shepherd. That which was torn by beasts I did not bring to you, though he could have. I bore the loss of it. He didn't need to do that. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night, more than the law required of him. 
There I was in the day, the drought consumed me, and the frost by night, the elements, endangering his life. And my sleep departed from my eyes. In those verses, verses 38 through 40, we come to the conclusion that Jacob was a good shepherd. And it sounded like he nearly had to lay down his life for the sheep, but God delivered him from death. Fast forward 700 years later, we have another good shepherd, that's David. David, as a young boy who would become Israel's greatest king later on, as a young boy, he goes to bring supplies to his brothers. They're in the army and they're at the battle lines. And while he's there, the enemy across the way sends out a giant. You might know him. His name is Goliath. He comes out and he taunts the God of Israel and he taunts the army of Israel. And David's like, well, who is this guy? And why isn't anybody going out there to fight him? And then word of that gets back to the king. David goes before the king, the first king Israel ever had, King Saul. And David says, you know what, don't worry, I'm going to go fight that guy. And Saul says, you're just a boy, you're just a shepherd. And David says, yes, I am a shepherd, but let me tell you something about being a shepherd. And he says this in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 34 through 36. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock... I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. And then in verse 37, it says this. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. What do we see here? It sounds like David was a good shepherd. And it sounds like he nearly had to lay down his life for the sheep. But God delivered him from death. So where am I going with this? You can probably tell where I'm going with this. I'm going to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 11 through 16. Jesus speaking here. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Was Jacob a good shepherd? Yeah, it sure sounds like Jacob was a good shepherd. Was David a good shepherd? Yeah, it sounds like David was a good shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. If Jacob was a good shepherd and David was a good shepherd, Jesus is the supreme, ultimate good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Jacob, his life was endangered, but God delivered him from death. David, his life was in danger, fighting a lion, fighting a bear, but what happened? God delivered him from death. What does it say here? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. What is he doing? Jesus is predicting his own death. He's telling that he is going to lay down his life. He's the good shepherd. The good shepherd's willing to lay down his life for the sheep. And he's predicting that because that's what's going to happen. He's going to lay his life down for the sheep. As the good shepherd, Jesus laid down his life for his sheep. But God delivered him from death. Jacob described life-threatening heat and cold. And God delivered Jacob from death. God delivered David from the lion and the bear. God delivered David from death. Jesus lays down his life. He's the only one that actually died. But what happens? God the Father delivered Jesus from death. We have in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, it's often called the parable of the lost sheep. It says this, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. Who's that? Is They went to hear Jesus, right? They drew near to Jesus to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness? So he's setting up this parable, right? And it's from the perspective of a shepherd. If he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness, and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found 
my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Who are these sheep? In Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, the parable of the lost sheep, who are the sheep? According to the words of the parable, especially in verse 7, who are the sheep? Well, you've got 99 just persons who need no repentance, and you've got one in there who is a sinner who repents. And there's more joy in heaven over the one sinner who repents than over the 99 who need no repentance. Who are the lost sheep? They are the followers of the shepherd. They are the followers of God. One of which was lost but now found, a sinner who has repented. If he's the good shepherd, who are the lost sheep? Well, there's another interesting passage. Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, Jesus says this. says, But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The lost sheep of the house of Israel. As a non-Jew, as a Gentile, that's me, I feel excluded from that then because I'm not of the house of Israel. At least not as he's describing there in Matthew 15, 24. I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But John 10, 16 John 10, 16. John chapter 10 is where we started when we turned over to see Jesus as the good shepherd. We hadn't looked beyond verse 14. Let's read verses 15 and 16. Continuing then where we left off, we left off at verse 14. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. Verse 15 now. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 16. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring and they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. So here we have in verse 16, what? There are other sheep. When you say other sheep, that sounds like at least two groups then. You've got group A and then others. So group A and group B, if we could call it that way. So group A is one group of sheep and group B are the other sheep. Who's group A? It's the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's group A. If group A is the lost sheep of the house of Israel, who's group B? Hmm, it sounds like it's probably sheep that are not of the house of Israel. It sounds like it's probably lost sheep of the house of what? The Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles. Whether you're Jewish or whether you're a Gentile, Jesus proffers himself as the shepherd of all. And what does it say there? There will be one flock and one shepherd. One flock made up of Jews and Gentiles and one shepherd made up of Jesus, the good shepherd, the ultimate good shepherd. But I want to make sure that you recognize something here. Here's what you need to know. Not everyone is his sheep. It seems like Jew and Gentile. Well, that takes care of everyone. Not exactly. Not everyone is his sheep because not everyone follows him. Is he your shepherd? Are you following him? Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Jesus is talking. And in verse 31, he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Not everyone is his sheep. That's what I said, right? As a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Those are the sheep. Those are the followers of God, the followers of the shepherd. Verse 37, though, that sounds like their group is a little confused. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? 
When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And then verse 40, And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. These are the ones described as righteous. These are the ones described as his sheep, his followers. Now moving on to verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And you're thinking, I don't want to be in that group. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they are also confused as we find in verse 44. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, and it's interesting, they call him Lord. There's lots of people who are willing to call him Lord but not live with him as their Lord. Do you realize that's what we're seeing here? We're seeing that what makes the difference between one group and the other, whether or not you lived with him as your Lord, whether or not you lived as if he is your Lord. It's not enough to call him Lord. This group is cursed. This group's destination is everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and they call him Lord. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison. Because if we had seen that, we would have done something. If we had seen our Lord, that we're calling our Lord, you know, the one that was experiencing these things, well, surely we would have done something. Does that cause you to pause? Does that cause you to tremble? Perhaps it should. Perhaps it should if you're thinking, well, if I would have seen Jesus as the one who was hungry, then I would have provided food. If I if I would have known it was Jesus who was naked, I would have provided clothes. If I would have known it was Jesus being treated like a stranger or in prison, I would have done something about it. If I'd seen that it was Jesus that was the one that was sick, I would have made different choices. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? They're confused. They call him Lord, but they're confused. I don't remember seeing him in those situations. Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So are you one of his beloved sheep? Are you a follower of the shepherd? Or are you a goat living selfishly for yourself? destined for hell. Which group are you in? Well, if you're in the right group, keep up the good work. But if you're in the wrong group and you're feeling that pang of the Spirit's conviction, it's not too late to make a change to truly live for God, to truly live with Him as your Lord. Not just in your words, but in your conduct. Not to just claim Him as Lord, but to actually live subject to Him as your Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity again to be reminded that our salvation is not based on works, but that our salvation is proven by our works. We don't get saved by being good. We don't get saved by feeding somebody that's hungry or giving somebody that's thirsty something to drink. But if we are saved, we would do those things. We're not saved by taking a stranger in. We're not saved by clothing a naked person. We're not saved by visiting somebody who's sick or in prison. But when we are saved, those are things that we would do. 
if we are saved. They are evidences that we are saved. What does it mean to be saved? It means to have surrendered our lives to you as sheep following the Good Shepherd. Pray that you would help us to be truly surrendered. Thank you, Lord, for laying down your life as the Good Shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. In Jesus' name, amen.